0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zall. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord.
1: Lord. here we are my friends it is another beautiful day in the neighborhood that's a shout out to you rj mr rogers uh Preach. disciple numero uno mm-hmm. uh how are you guys doing on a fine september afternoon
0: good do you feel like the weather's starting to change here rj i'm like yes. so hopeful. Thank maybe God. a little it's just it's you know, it's just that season we enter where you're just like you, you basically would like give up a month of your life for it to be like October in Houston. but yeah, it's good. We're good. It's like
1: the U.S. Open, they're having to cancel matches because it's so hot. and, really? and that's, that's in New York, yeah.
2: yeah, people all the tennis players basically look like they just jumped in a pool all the yeah. time, just soaking, yeah. soaking wet. It's crazy.
1: But if that's New York, if that's New Jersey, what's going on in Houston, RJ? I'm
2: doing great. Speaking of Mr. Rogers, I keep on getting the all these wonderful Mr. Rogers gifts. Like I've gotten one of those sweater changing mugs, you know, that when you mm-hmm. put the coffee in, he goes from wearing a jacket to a cardigan, which is incredible. And then someone gave me a notepad. And then just yesterday, someone gave me a full sheet of U.S. Postal Service Mr. Rogers stamps. Uh-huh. I know. It's so sweet. So, nice. so I love our church so much. And and that one actually came, I have no idea who it came from. It was totally anonymous. No note, no nothing no return address just a sheet of stamps and I was happy about that and uh, building up treasures in heaven yeah I guess so but it, it definitely makes me feel loved so if that person listens to the podcast thank you
1: Mm. It's really sweet. Yeah. We're all, we're sweet. actually we're all grateful to you for boosting RJ's uh, sense of himself because we know yes, how, that's true. how fragile it can be. And in fact, we're going to talk about <clears throat> fragility a lot today. Today we have a bunch of things about parenting as well as other subjects. Um, get ready
0: to be anxious. Get
1: ready to get anxious, people. Your <laughs> anxiety anxious, <sir>. meter. Yeah. <laughs> well, first we had a request actually to circle back to an article that Sarah you wrote about for the site, but that and it made the rounds. It's a wonderful wonderful. wonderful piece of writing that appeared in the New York Times by Kim Brooks, Motherhood in the Age of Fear. This is actually after she recounts getting essentially arrested for leaving a kid in a car and uh, sort of dealing with the actual law enforcement related to that. She says, we now live in a country where it is seen as abnormal or even criminal to allow children to be away from direct adult supervision, even for a second. We read about children who've been kidnapped, raped and killed, about children forgotten for hours in broiling cars. We do not compare the likelihood of such events with far more present dangers like increasing rates of childhood diabetes or depression. Statistically speaking, you would have to leave a child alone in a public place for 750,000 years before tempting. Uh, they would be snatched by a stranger.) <laughs>
0: tried it didn't work have you met my son
1: (laughs) they found their way home (laughs) statistically speaking a child is far more likely to be killed in a car on the way to a store than waiting in one that is parked but we have decided to do whatever we have to do to feel safe from such horrors no matter how rare they might be and so now children do not walk to school or play in a park on their own they do not wait in cars they do not take long walks through the woods or ride bikes along paths or build secret forts while we are inside working or cooking or leading our lives and we've talked about this before I think a while back in in something about neighborhoods and the vanishing sort of free play time. But she hones in on it when she says that one mother put it to me, I don't know if I'm afraid for my kids or if I'm afraid other people will be afraid and will judge me for my lack of fear. And then she talks, of course, about how this scrutiny is focused, really, almost exclusively on mothers, when she said, mm. when a person intimidates, insults, or demeans a woman on the street for the way she is dressed, it's harassment. But when a mother is intimidated, insulted, or demeaned because of her parenting choices, we call it concern. A mother apparently cannot be harassed, a mother can only be corrected. I mean, I find this very convincing. Maybe it's because I live in a town where people seem to be hypervigilant, even though they s- apparently moved here because of the parks and the safety and all that stuff. And yet that has had almost no effect on anxiety levels among parents. And I don't know, Sarah, you wrote about this. I would love to hear, where are you on this, you know, a couple of weeks after writing about it or a month or so?
0: It's funny, I have a friend, a uh, friend, priest in our diocese named David Peters, who wrote something about um it was just sort of he's got two boys and divorced and then has another boy um in his second marriage. And um so he's got a lot of parenting experience and he and he just put up this little thing that was like, you know, we all want to say that this is the best way to parent or this is the best way to parent. But basically it's like how did you grow up? And that has such a direct reflection on how you're parenting. So I do wonder what I'm like, what is what is in the ether that this is how we're responding very specifically to mothers, especially because you know, and I, I pointed out in my piece, but it's definitely in this piece in New York Times. This was perfectly normal to leave your kid in the car. In the 90s. I mean, that's when I was a kid in a car, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to go traipsing around places with my parents and they'd leave me there for a little while and it was fine. And it's like, what has changed? I don't know if it's that we hear, even though there are less scary stories, we hear more of them. Mm -hmm. Dave, I actually think about you and Kate a lot because... For the longest time, you've talked about how great the area you live is in terms of kids kind of roaming and like being together. And this past Friday night, our son is at the neighborhood school now. He's not at the church school anymore, which has been interesting because the church school kind of kept us from getting to know people. And this Friday night, like a couple of people a street over, like, hey, come over, and you know, and we're gonna drink, and the kids are gonna play, and for like an hour and a half, <laughs> like we sat there drinking wine, and our kids like ran crazy in the street and had a blast. Annie scanned her chin. I mean, it was a, it was a glorious success, and but I was like, gosh, I feel like this is really rare now that mm. people have this sense of community and trust and you know I, when when my friend Dave, David Peters wrote, wrote that little thing I thought of my husband who grew up in the country I mean in the country so for him when our son roams the neighborhood even though he grew up playing in the woods when our son roams the neighborhood he's like hey is he okay how far is he how long has it been since he's been home you know it's just this kind of collective anxiety and for some reason it gets placed on mothers i mean mm. you know What are we not responsible for? Yeah.
1: It's, and she goes through a laundry list of, like, if you're a stay-at-home mom all times, you're not doing it right. If you ha- have to work, you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, semi-present and cool, then then you're not doing it right. It's, anyway, it was it's a laundry list, and I think we all recognize that. But I would say, in terms of how, just how other parents think of kids, and this idea that I'm, as a dad, but as a parent, I'm much more, generally speaking, concerned about what other parents will think, rather than whether or not my kid is safe, which... Maybe that reflect maybe I'm too laissez faire and as Sarah, as you mentioned, we've got this amazing neighborhood where kids do just ride bikes for hours and we walk to school and the kids you know when they're in second grade, they're going to be able to walk by themselves. But I don't know this this resounds deeply and we're going to explore some of the the, the longer term effects of what's being called safetyism, but RJ, where what about you?
2: Well, I think it just it brings to mind the ubiquity of the law. You know, there's no way you can get away from the law. And we think I think there's some voices in our culture that said the problem is religion, the problem is Christianity, the problem is is, is legalism. And it's like no, it, you know, doing away with all that doesn't solve the problem of people's fear and their need to control and their need to judge. And that actually, when you take away the church and take away this this word of grace, which you know, notwithstanding all the other stuff, does sometimes actually shine through. It doesn't get Better, It actually gets worse, you know, that we're just not a, we're not a merciful culture. We're constantly looking to judge others and call out their faults. And I think what Sarah said about, you know, it used to be perfectly normal to leave your kid in the car for a few minutes. Uh, It reminds me of my wife telling me how her grandmother used to um, drive around and breastfeed at the same time, (laughs) you know. (laughs) which, you know, or if you watch back is, you know... Multitasking uh, in in modern parlance. Multitasking. (laughs) And you know there were, like, no headrests or, uh, you know, seatbelts in those cars or anything. Or you watch Mad Men. You know, those classic scenes where Don Draper's little girl is playing in the plastic that comes back from the dry cleaners. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Which I remember wanting to play with, too, when I was a kid, and my mom being like, you're gonna die, you're gonna suffocate. You know, or the kids playing in the back. So... Yeah, we're just a fearful culture and this idea that you can do it right, that there's some way that you can make life safe and manageable, that you can control it, which you can't. You know, you can love your kids. But you can't save them from everything. We've actually seen this with Marshall because, you know, he's our third baby. But for our two older boys, he's their first baby. And they're actually a lot more worried about his safety than we are. You know, so much of the time, my my son, my 16-year-old son, dad... Marshall's dancing on the table outside, and I'm like, yeah, he's dancing on the table. He's going to fall down at some point, and he may, you know, bleed or something, but that's the only way he's going to learn, because I'm not going to get up every five minutes and take him off the table in the backyard, and uh, I'm not going to hover over him. I mean, he just is going to have to learn some things on his own, and you, you know, you have to be judicious about how much danger you're, you know, willing RJ, to let your
1: kids... What is, yeah. he, what is he doing right now? Marshall? Yeah, is he okay right now? <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, he's a preschool. Oh my gosh, where's my, he's where's my phone? Table. Get, he's little, on the let
2: table. You're to a little, let me call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. He likes to dance on the table outside, which is like three feet off the ground. But he hasn't fallen off yet, yet. Um, but what was the last thing? Oh, the part that was very convicting for me, too, was about, Sarah, What you sort of have both said this, but maybe not said it directly, is how this judgment doesn't fall on dads. Yeah. It just doesn't. How dad, dad, It's like, well, dads are basically incompetent anyway, yes. so it doesn't make a difference. But there's great safety and security in incompetence. And it reminds me of this father-son campout that one of our son's schools used to do every year. And there was this part every afternoon where who knows what people would be doing. It was hundreds of acres. And I remember sitting with a bunch of dads. None of our boys are anywhere to be seen. They're probably seven to 11 years old, and this one dad rolls up and says, hey, have you seen my son? And all the dads are like, nope, haven't seen him. And one's like, oh yeah, I saw him like an hour ago next to the lake. (laughs) You know? And I was thinking to myself... This is both not good parenting and excellent parenting, both at the same time. But it also just wouldn't happen if there were moms around because moms are so judged for the parenting they do or don't do. They don't have the freedom to be like, yeah, I have no idea where my kid is. You know, maybe he's um, floating somewhere, but uh, I, I don't actually have any idea. So th- those are the thoughts that occurred to me. But I do. I feel bad well, for feel bad for moms and man, the the author of that article to have been a you know, warrant out for her arrest because she left her kid in the car for three minutes. Like, what is our nation uh, coming to?
1: Well, what it's coming to is groups like this thing that we heard about on NPR this very week called uh, Free Range Kids, which I thought was pretty interesting, uh, which promotes childhood independence. It gives family the information they need to push back against a culture of overprotection. The founder says that there's this very pessimistic, fearful way of looking at childhood that's not based in reality. It's something that we've been taught. And for for years, the group has sought to correct the misconception of childhood dangers, telling parents that abductions and murders are record lows, even though as perceptions of danger have risen. And of course, they surface the, other, the same thing about parents being afraid to be the only ones who are allowing their kids to ride their bike alone. But then it goes one step further. A woman named Laura Randall has founded a project called Let Grow. Instead of let go, let grow, which is reaching out to elementary schools across the country to assign kids new kinds of homework. Participating kids decide to do something on their own they haven't done before, whether it's walking the dog around the block or making dinner or walking a few aisles over in the supermarket to get some eggs. And of course, it goes on. I, I kind of love the idea. And, 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 you know, if she can tap into, if this group can tap into our performanceism and the obsession with success, then it maybe has a shot. You know, that's what I I think it's like, if we could get into our self-justification about these kids actually do better in life, they're less fragile, they're more more willing to push through. But they also do report on the mental health fallout from over the past 50 years, there's been an eight-fold increase in depression, five- to ten-fold increase in generalized anxiety disorder. And it doesn't correlate with economic cycles, wars, or divorce rates, but it does correlate very well with the decline of children's freedom to play. There's a Nigerian uh, theologian named Nimi Wariboko, who we did an interview with one time, and he talks about the Holy Spirit really being the spirit of play. Simeon's all going to talk about this, and that the life of the Christian is the life of play, which means you're free to engage in life independent of the outcome. Play is basically defined as any activity that does not have an intended result that's done for its own sake, and that this spirit of play is the spirit of freedom, which is the Holy Spirit. And I think uh, if we could reclaim, a little bit of that. I mean, I I mentioned it and I put a Robert Capon quote up today on Mockingbird, which is probably worth reading here because it's so amazing. But he said, if we're ever to enter fully into the glorious liberty of the children of God, we're going to have to spend more time thinking about freedom than we do. The church, by and large, has had a poor record of encouraging freedom. It has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that it has made us like ill-taught piano students. We play our pieces, but we never really hear them because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will get us in trouble. The church, having put itself in loco parentis, in the place of a parent, has been so afraid we will lose sight of the need to do it right that it has made us care more about how we look than about who Jesus is. And I don't know what else really needs to be said after that, but I would love to hear what the NPR piece kind of evoked in both of you.
0: Yeah, well, I've talked about it on here before, but somebody tried to abduct me when I was in third grade in my neighborhood, like two houses down, which you would think would make me more afraid for my kids to be out, and it makes me less afraid, just because I think there's a way that we can teach children to be in the world, and that we should be confident mm. in that, and that there's something, probably even in terms of their mental health, that's really good for them, that they feel like they're capable of being in the world and mm. that they don't have to be afraid of everything. Um, so a lot of stuff she was doing, I mean, honestly, if, you, if you're if you listening to this and you have a little kid and they drive you crazy sometimes and you've got a dog, you have an opportunity to get them out of your house. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so loud in my head. I don't say that to him. And then I'm like, take the dog for a walk. Like the, you know, I mean, there is this like element of like, yes, it is gives everyone sanity, right? Because- what we're raising them to do is to leave, and I also think we're forgetting that in a lot of our parenting right now. Hmm. I don't
2: know. This article reminded me of something that happened last summer, which this is a bit of kind of a, a brag, so I'll just say that up front. But I'm 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 proud of me and my wife. I sort of what I think was one of the defining moments of our eldest son's adolescence, where he was going to be gone for pretty much the whole month of June. He went to Alabama to do a space camp because he's into that sort of thing. And then he flew to New York to spend some time with family and went to a camp up there. And then he flew down to Florida to do sort of an outreach camp with our high school youth group at church. And then he flew back home and he did it all himself and i dropped him off on a sunday morning at bush intercontinental airport we were there at like 5 30 in the morning and his flight was delayed and there was some question as to whether he would be able to make it but i had to get to church because it was sunday morning and so he had a cell phone and i said hey jack here's your cell phone you have your cell phone you have an id the gate is that way you are smart and capable and you're gonna figure it out and he did and he navigated changing terminals and making flight transfers and connecting with family. And when he got back from that month, he was an adult, kind of mm-hmm. like, not exactly, you know, he's, he was 15 years old, but he had a sense of confidence and his ability to, you know, exist in the world and problem solve and get things done and ask questions and that I'd never seen before. And it was really pretty amazing to see. And since then, I've seen that sort of fruit of that borne out in other ways. But I will also say, I was scared, you know, especially on my way home, on my way to work. I called my wife and I was like, well, I I, I had to leave him. I had to get to work. I have no idea if the flight's going to take off. And we were a little nervous about it. But everything worked out really well. And I think it was incredibly important for his development. So I advocate, send your kids on adventures by themselves with (laughs)
1: cell phones. (laughs) Well it gets a little a little uh we have to get a little darker into the diagnosis here, uh, before we get some extra light because uh this past week is the fir- the week that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff they have Put out their new book, and as longtime listeners will know, that we love Jonathan Haidt's incredible. We included him in that Pagan Priests of Mockingbird thing in the new issue of the magazine. But he's just—he wrote The Righteous Mind. He spoke at one of our conferences, and he's really—he understands a lot of this. And he's been focused on uh, what's going on on university campuses, and basically what happens to these kids who grow up in an overprotected environment once they get a little older. And their new book is called The Coddling of the American Mind: How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up. A Generation for Failure, and you may, people may have remember, they wrote a big article that was on the cover of the Atlantic Monthly uh, about two years ago, and they've turned it into a book. And uh, basically, their explanation for our era of campus craziness, you know, sort of the insanity that's going on, on on grounds where, you know, there's all, people are getting fired left, right, and center, and Halloween costumes, and you name it, they see it as primarily psychological. They don't see it as political or sociological, that a well-intentioned safety culture, the one that we've described, has led to paranoid parenting, when screen time replacing unstructured and unsupervised playtime has created a fragile generation. Basically, safety culture has the best of intentions to protect kids from danger. And let it be said, by the way, that RJ's kids are all still breathing apparently. Um, I don't
2: actually know that for a fact, but I'm assuming that that's the case at the present moment. <laughs>
1: uh, he said, They say, it, this safety culture began with a focus on physical safety, removing sharp objects and choke hazards requiring child seats not letting children walk home alone. Safety, however, or physical safety, has experienced substantial concept creep, meaning it used to mean something relatively limited and now it means a huge meaning. It now includes emotional safety, that is, not being exposed to ideas that could cause psychological distress. But when you guard your children against every possible risk, do not let them play or walk home alone, and the intellectual equivalent, they exaggerate the fear of such situations and fail to develop resilience and coping skills they say that actually one of the thing one of the fruit of this kind of safetyism is the promulgation or the spreading of another untruth within academic and wider public discourse which is the notion that life consists of many small battles between good and evil that is presumed that one's ideological, political, um, you know, social opponent has the worst possible intentions, and therefore is out to create feelings of victimization, anger, hopelessness in students who believe that about their fellow human beings. Again, we've talked about this in a, a number of ways. I think that the book got a great review in the New York Times, and um, it could be slightly alarmist. And I think we're already. Talking in this podcast about some of the reaction to it. There's always going to be a reaction to it, but we certainly, um, I would say that a lot of this sounds like a very faithless culture. So, I mean, not that we've always always been faithless, but we haven't always had the tech, the technology. I mean, there was another article this week that said that was legitimately asking how closely should I track my kids' cell phones? And the kids in question being like 17 years old. <laughs> and um, and I guess uh, like something like 20% of parents actively track their kids' cell phones, uh, not just when they're 9 and 10, but when they're 17, 18. I don't, I don't think that conveys a whole lot of trust or grace to your child, but um, maybe talk to me when my kids are a little older. Um, anyway, the sort of lack of grace that we experience interpersonally in these hyper-scrutinized environments and the just adversarial antagonism and just plain old negativity and oppressive law of it all seems to be rooted in what they would say are some good intentions. And it reminded me, of course, that, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, sin most of it is taking something good and kind of uh perverting it almost to twisting it into something that is not not good and here the parental desire to protect your children has turned into something that is um, creating children that um, cannot be protected because anything becomes a threat anyway that's what where my, my mind goes what about you Sarah
0: I mean I, th- I I think some of this there's there I mean there's so much to unpack and I can only unpack probably one thing but you know, having been in an academic culture recently that I felt like was a lot like this, I think there was a very good and necessary push, especially, you know, around the 1960s, the civil rights movement in this country for us to bring people into the conversation who had not been in the conversation before and whose voices needed to be there and whose intellect needed to be shared and nourished. And I think that narrative never left academia. I mean, that's what it felt like to me at certain points. So then everything could be turned in like, so then people who for not any good reason would see themselves as victims suddenly took on that same kind of narrative. That was definitely the experience I had when I was in school. And then instead of learning things, I would be in a classroom and it would be like, who is more victimized than the other people in the classroom and why? And, there was a great deal of contention. It really genuinely, my experience of that kind of environment was it it really made it hard to learn anything because there was always like, who's going to freak out? Mm. And, you know, it was interesting to to read these comments about sort of what the academic institution was. And when you think about in the 60s, what it was, and that there was like, you know, there was certainly civil rights stuff on campuses. There was Vietnam War protests on campuses. But now it's like... We've, we've taken those things, which were such necessary issues to address, and then a lot of the stuff that seems to get the same energy and attention just doesn't quite meet that mark. So, you know, I keep thinking about a class I took on the Book of Common Prayer, which is the prayer book we use in the Episcopal Church, and we had to teach it to each other. We, like, had to divide up into groups, and this guy stormed out of the class In the middle of it being taught because somebody had said something negative about inclusive language. Like, he wasn't going to even stay for the class. Like, and when I say stormed out, I mean, like a desk hit the wall, the door flew open, like the class stopped. I had this Canadian professor who was really nice and he looked like Dwight Schrute and he did not know how to handle the situation. Like, it was a total mess. And, you know, this is just, like, my sales pitch for you should look at, like, the old stuff on Mockingbird. Because I had to teach the Prayer for Humble Access, like, the next week. And people, if you don't know this prayer, it's people have very strong feelings. They either love it or they don't. People feel like it's too penitential. And I was just waiting for, you know, the last thing I want is somebody to, like, yell at me in class. And also and this is the reality in academic settings, we are there to learn. And in seminary, you got to learn the Book of Common Prayer, even the parts you don't like, because guess what? You're going to have to use it at some point in your ministry, and you can't like make a grand statement to the 93-year-old lady that wants it for her funeral. So all that is to say, I went on Mockingbird's website and found the eulogy that Tyler Perry did at Whitney Houston's funeral, and that is how I taught the prayer for humble access in that kind of an academic environment, because and it's you know it's such a a Paul's all sort of you know he's always over us as the godfather of this stuff, but you know it kind of made people let their guard down, right? Because it was this thing from pop culture. It's Witty Houston. Everybody was Witty Houston, you know. It kind of got me in, but um the the stakes were. I mean, I look back and I I do. I say this sometimes, I think people think I'm kidding, I did not learn much, because the stakes were so high in that environment for who was right, and who was wrong, and who was in, and who was out, I mean, it was just incredibly aggressive, like, in the least productive way. Mm.
1: And yet, if what we're reading is true, it's not like the students themselves, it's like the the atmosphere in which they've been raised, and like... uh, that this is the air we've 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 sort of allowed our children and one another to breathe, and that's what's. Yeah. Um, and of course, it all. Re- it's not like it was really ever that. It, we just had different problems way back when. Right. But I wow, that's that's uh, that's arresting to say the least. I think of you every time I say that book of common prayer. <laughs> I mean that that sorry that prayer of humble <laughs> <That> access. <prayer. laughs> what do you think, R.J.?
2: Well, I thought as I was reading this article, you know, I know today we're talking about, we started off talking about sort of having more mercy on parents who are just kind of doing the best they can, not judging them too hard. But I do feel like, obviously, to the degree that this is a thing, it, it's a failure of parenting. You know, it's it's a, it's a failure of, of parents to convey things to their children cognitively and emotionally, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking, like, what is what is the job of a parent, really, with their kid? And what, what are they supposed to teach them about the world and themselves? And it sort of seems to me, and this is, you know, broadly general, that the things that a parent is supposed to teach is that, you know, the world is not a perfect place, and you're part of that. Like, you're not perfect either, but you are loved, and that somehow you're unconditionally loved in spite of the fact that you're not perfect. But those teachings have been a little bit skewed to almost like, well— the world isn't perfect, but it should be. But you are perfect, because you're my perfect child. But then also at the same time, I do wonder, as much as over-parenting is a thing in our culture, how present are parents with their children really? Like maybe they're keeping them safe, but are they actually emotionally, physically present for their mm. children? There's this weird thing of yes, you're being overparented and protected and and coddled and at the same time you're not really being known or loved and that those two things aren't the same thing like we've confused overprotection for love and they're not the same thing uh, that's so um, that's so insightful yes rj and, <laughs> yes and i can and i can say it is very difficult when your parent when you don't feel like your parents have any idea who you are and don't really mm-hmm. care
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know and don't have time for you to listen to you that's hard and that leaves a mark and it also then doesn't allow you maybe really to to tell the truth about yourself, or maybe you take yourself too seriously. or Like, I just want to, you know, I want to be really careful, because I get, I get so tired of older people complaining about, you know, these millennials, this generation, and it's like, well, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but even if it is true, why do you think that is? <laughs> what made them that way?
1: Mm.
2: You know, is it just their fault? Of course it's not. Like, right. people bear the wounds of their families and their parents and their grandparents, and Can we have a little bit more compassion for not just the parents who don't know, who maybe are failing at parenting, but for the children whose parents have failed at parenting? Mm -hmm. Um, So, that's what it made me think of. It just made me sort of sad. Um, Mm. And, uh, but there are benefits to going to church, you know, of, of being forced to interact with people who are not like you, who don't come from where you do, even if they may look like you, they... You're going to meet people who are not like you in a context which is being in which you're being told, talked to, about sin and forgiveness and grace and mercy. You know, that it becomes a little bit more difficult to just completely dismiss out of hand people who don't agree with you or see the world the way that you do. And I don't want to be too self righteous as a Christian because we got our own problems, but you know, the problem is us and not Jesus. <laughs> you know, to the degree that we're talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we may be actually doing some good and allowing for some healing and wholeness in the world.
0: Yeah, I keep thinking of this piece, RJ, everything you said was awesome, and we, but we, you were like, you know, what Thanks, is our role? Sir. No, it was really good. <laughs> I had to like keep from myself from like, just kind of like, encouraging you like i would do in church if you're at the pulpit so i try not to do in episcopal churches anyway because it gets weird for people but (laughs) go rj it's over yeah exactly (laughs) i'm like come on bridge you know but i don't but anyway um there's a piece that we should link to that was that's on that was on rooted ministry this past week that i read um it's by a woman named emily hyde and charlotte is our charlotte charlotte cats yeah um yeah is like is very uh, involved. She belongs in to us. Yes. Well, <laughs> yes, if she's really involved with them. Anyway, she, she had posted this, this piece. And um, so the, the, the piece has gone through my head the past couple of days. And it reminds me of this conversation. The title of it is get them in the Ark," which I love. And it's about raising children. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the writer, she says, recently I was throwing myself a pity party about my latest failure. When a friend looked at me and bluntly stated, Emily, you just need to get them in the ark.'" My confused look must have been enough of a reply. She continued Go back to the story of Noah. He is obedient to God in building the ark. Then God commands him to get everyone, his family, and two of every living creature inside. Once they are all inside, God is the one who closes the door and saves them all, not Noah. This is your only job as a parent, get them in the ark. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I don't I know that that's like a simplistic Christian, I get all that, but I I have to tell you in the past week it's brought me comfort. I'm like that's my job. You know what I mean? Like get them in the ark. Well, so. that's
1: that's beautiful. I th- when we and when we're talking about our job as parents and I, you know, it's hard not to think of it as to to frame it in terms of duty. I think it's also privilege and I think it's mainly joy. Mm-hmm. Though the last couple of weeks of a s- screaming 2-year-old have have have, have sort of uh
0: i was on the phone with dave last night that kid has
1: indicated the very the, the <laughs> polar opposite i'm in the duty phase i'm in the duty phase in, in every sense of that word but he's
0: super cute uh, so i totally yeah, it's worth it's it it's bad
1: he's gonna get by on his looks well this is an article that came <laughs> in the new york times by uh, a philosopher named neil uh tognazini what a great name uh called in defense of taking things for granted And he said, in general, taking things for granted is considered irresponsible, even damaging. Uh, Taking your spouse for granted is a surefire way to make her feel unloved. Taking your income for granted can put you at financial risk if you lose your job. Taking your health for granted can lead you to take poor care of yourself. But there's something distinctly valuable about allowing many aspects of your life to recede into the background, into an unconscious metal box we might label presuppositions. Much of our understanding of the world comes in the form of such obvious, unnoticed presuppositions, but they need not concern only small matters, like traffic lights. Uh, They occur in more important contexts, too. One of the ways I'll feel that I've succeeded as a father, for example, is if it never occurs to my daughter to wonder whether I love her. I want my love to be part of her taken-for-granted background. A similar thought applies to my relationship with my wife. Part of what makes ours a committed relationship instead of a casual one is what we are permitted to take for granted about each other, love, fidelity, support for each other's projects. Having one's bearings in the world requires being located somewhere, and being located somewhere requires having some ground to stand on. What we take for granted is that ground. And you might as well just capitalize the G there and call it God. Mm. I mean, what is it What is it? I uh, think faith really is? It's uh, what I take for granted, that God is there and God is for me and with me, and uh, that is what I want certainly my kids to take away in terms of my presence, and I think it's much easier to conceptualize. God that way if you've had that experience of an actual earthly parent. But this idea of maybe what we're to do is to, when it comes to actual safety, it's not protecting children from the slings and arrows, emotional or physical, it's giving them the ground that they stand on so they're not falling apart all the time. And maybe that's the ground is love, and we would say God is love, and uh, I don't know, That's I thought it was a beautiful way to phrase something that I've heard put in other terms before did you guys connect with this piece at all
0: yeah well i i loved the image he used with his daughter but i actually i for me this is so much more of a marriage thing because like when i got married my greatest fear was that i would be taken for granted like that was had been mm. very instilled in me probably by my parents and by culture don't be taken for granted and my husband that's just not in his DNA to take somebody for granted. But that was, it was always sort of this like thing, are you going to take me for granted? And so it was very powerful to read that. And, you know, it's been sort of sanctification takes like 4,000 years, a powerful shift in our marriage that, you know, I'm in a place now where if I, if I feel like I'm being taken for granted, it usually means I'm tired or hungry. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not because I'm actually being taken for granted. So that I found very relatable. And of course, like the, you know, the message of, of the cross is so powerful in this because it is something that we take for granted and in so many ways are allowed to take for granted. And that is well, one of the really bizarre things about Christianity is that it's this religion that you accept what's happened on your behalf, and then you go out and you live your life in that freedom, and that is very different from other forms of religion that exist on this planet. So, yeah, I mean, I love the idea that we God lets us take him for granted all the time,
1: yeah, that's right? and that's why it stuck to me because I think like when you get married, what uh, when, when you I was talking to a couple who was about to get married, I mean you' you're, you're basically saying I'm not going anywhere. You can take it for granted that I will be here. And that is an act of grace. That sort of yes is what usually allows people to be themselves. And sometimes it's the boys in the basement, the ugly stuff that comes out. But when you when you take something for granted, it means it's no longer up for grabs. And so whatever it is we are taking for granted is what we've been assured of, maybe naively. But what would it mean to, in a positive sense, to take something for granted? It would mean that there's nothing I can do or say that will cause you to leave. That will cause God to turn His face from me. And that is a uh, profoundly liberating and is uh, the place in which all the things can come to light which need to come to light. And, you know, any kind of healing that really takes place, I think, does happen in the light of grace rather than in order to secure that grace, you know, in order to establish your ground. So, that's where my mind went with this. I
2: think what I realized as I was ruminating, and you guys were being so eloquent and profound, Is that for me, speaking personally, grace and unconditional love and mercy is always a surprise. Mm. It's just always. And that I wish that I could live as if I took it for granted, but I don't. The place I live always is that I'm not good enough and things are not going to work out, that I'm not loved. And that's why when... I hear a song, or I listen to a podcast, or I see a movie, or I watch a TV show, or I hear a sermon, or whatever it is, where I ex- that 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 I abreact to that makes God's grace manifest in my life. That's the like, oh, that's being woken up out mm-hmm. of how I actually live, yeah. the things I actually mm-hmm. take for granted, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm seeking. That's what I want. I want to live in that place. Where I could actually believe it in in an ongoing way, but I can't. I can't I don't, I can't. and that's why I think I need to be in the job that I'm in, where I need to talk about it all the time and I need to hear it all the time and I need to proclaim it all the time to other people because I'm always just preaching to myself and I want it to be true. but I don't deep down really, of course, I, I cognitively believe it is but experientially, I'm not able to rest in that. Mm. You know, I wish I could. Someday, maybe. No, I, and maybe more than I used to. I
1: think that's that's deeply honest. I think that maybe the times mm-hmm. in our lives when we do evince some tangible fruit of belief is when we've come to be convinced that God is not go, not uh, judging us or that we're not, there's the conditional schema has faded away or it's been trumped by the one of grace. And so, I, I've I've there's nothing you just said that I wouldn't uh, deeply um, underline because here we have is like this this incredibly multifaceted phrase. In, in fact, that's kind of a cool thing to do is to talk about it in that way.
2: Yeah, because let's face it, like life is generally kind of disastrous. <laughs> You know, that's a heavy thing. I've been watching, I'm sure you guys have seen all of it. We finally started watching A Good Place. Oh, you know, no, we're in I season haven't. two. Sarah, it is so good. There was a moment in a recent episode where Kristen Bell says something about how what it means to be human is to be like a little bit sad all the time. Oh. And I was like, that is so true. And I can't believe this isn't a sitcom right now. But there's a lot to be said for that show from a Christian perspective with regard to ethics and motivation. I may write something about it at some point. Oh, you but, should. Um, I mean,
1: that yes, that that show is one uh, illustration after another of of scorekeeping, scorekeeping law, judgment. The difficulty, RJ, as people know who've seen that show and Sarah, uh, that show, I, I cannot recommend it more highly. As you'll find out, it's very difficult to write about b- without uh, spoiling things. That's that's what I'll say. Giving
2: giving the whole thing away. That's exactly it, it's right. it, that's,
1: exactly that's why right. we haven't written about it. But talk it as about much. the
2: ubiquity of the law. You know, and and to go back to what we talked about before. But, but anyway, so yeah, part of being human is just you're a little bit sad all the time. Mm. <laughs> And I don't, I don't want to be, but that's, that's kind of the, the taken for granted of my, my life, into which the gospel breaks sometimes. And I'm like, ah. it's very nice when that happens. And then I just cry on the side of the road.
1: <laughs> well, because we cannot stand or tolerate feeling bad, even for a moment or sad, we are going to give you two things to feel good about. How about that? Oh, thank you, Dave. Yes. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> We're gonna end on an upbeat note, because we are yes! Christians! Um, <laughs> Woo! Uh, actually, Death and resurrection, baby. Next week, you have something, oh, we all have something wonderful to look forward to, and that Ethan has been working really hard to craft an episode of the of the Mockingcast around the Deja Vu issue of the magazine, and he's gotten interviews with Nancy Hanna, and with Jacob Smith, and with a, someone named Simeon Zoll. I don't know who that is, but I've heard parts of it, and it's gonna be great. So, you've got that to look forward to the other thing to mention is that the mocking app is finally ready app for mobile devices and we're giving it um it's all of our monthly supporters if you're a person who supports mockingbird monthly at five dollars a month or more everyone's getting emailed about it today and they're going to be able to you get an app you're going to be pre. and it it will be available to everyone in a month or so maybe later but yeah if you're not a supporter sign up you'll get an app and this thing is—you know—that was an Oprah reference, right? I know it wasn't. Uh, yeah, oh, I know it crazy. was.
0: I could see. I'm, it. I'm just going
1: to act like it didn't happen. <laughs> right. um, but I just want to say thank you to you too, and I hope your weeks are full of that. You're protected, and that you are um, not uh, s- too sad. That you cannot um, get through.
0: That you're safe and only a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> our Mockingbird hope
1: for you this week
0: <laughs> that our parenting book will, will be out next year
1: yes all right thanks guys. Sad.
0: Bye, all guys bye guys
1: thank you for listening remember you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for the Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.